And so as they go out to fight the Philistines in Jezreel, both Saul and Jonathan are killed. That makes Mephibosheth, from the eyes of the world, the next one. He's the next one in line to take over the throne. Having heard what took place, one of his servants, the servant that was responsible, the woman responsible at five years old for Mephibosheth, grabs Mephibosheth in fear that he's going to be the next one killed, grabs him in a hurry, and begins to take off on a horse. And as he takes off, evidently she drops him. And in the process, he becomes crippled. So we don't know exactly what happened, but we know as a result of her dropping him that that's the moment at five years old when his feet become crippled. Now, we know that God in 1 Samuel chapter 16 had anointed David even as a young boy to be the next king. And so Israel's heart has been turned from Saul and has to some degree accepted that David would be the next king of Israel. Fearing what would take place, as was commonplace in the ancient world, most of the time what would happen is as a king from outside the kingly lineage would rise to be the next king, what that new king would do is kill everyone in that former line in fear that whenever he grew up, he would try to have a coup or start an uprising and try to divide the kingdom. And because he was the next one that should have been in charge, Mephibosheth might have some allegiance to those who love Saul and Jonathan. And so this nurse, this woman, takes Mephibosheth from a young age and leads him to a city called Lodabar. Now that's an important thing, Lodabar. Because the word Lodabar means nothing. Or no word, no communication, no pasture. So this woman, in an attempt to protect Mephibosheth from the new king, goes out to nowhere to hide. At least that's the presumption, I think a safe presumption. Takes him out there to hide for fear of what the king might do. Then the scriptures go silent. And we go from chapter 4 to chapter 9, and there are years that pass. And we don't know anything about Mephibosheth other than he's out in the middle of nowhere. And then David one day, after having established himself as the king, after having been on his throne for some number of years, begins to think about an event that had taken place earlier in his life. This event involved Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. And if you were to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 20, what you would learn and what we find out about David and Jonathan is that they deeply loved one another. They had a bond as best friends. And the Bible says that they loved one another more intensely or more than even a man loves a woman. So they were best friends. And God had knitted their hearts together for God's good. And in the midst of that, in chapter 20, we learn, the very last verse of that chapter, that they made a covenant with one another. They made a pact. 
And this pact was, now in the midst of this covenant, I want you to recognize that Saul is trying to actively kill David. He has thrown a javelin at him. He has tried to attack him on numerous times. His anger is full and he is angry towards David that God had chosen David to be the next king. Even so much that when Jonathan is at the dinner table with his father and David has absented himself because Jonathan gave him permission and Jonathan and Saul begin to talk with one another, Saul even rises up with anger at his own son Jonathan because what he says in trying to protect David, that he actually takes a spear and throws it at Jonathan out of anger. Saul hates David to that degree. And yet Jonathan is protecting David. And so they make a covenant with one another. And they said, our covenant, our our agreement, our pact, our promise to one another is that I will look out for your family and your seed forever. So David is going to look after Jonathan's seed and Jonathan is going to look after David's seed. And this is when they're both young men. And now a lot has changed. Years have passed, and now David is upon the throne. Now, it's interesting because Jonathan is okay with that. That's one of the things that I love about Jonathan is though he was the natural heir to the throne, he was desirous that God's will would be done. And so even though it would come at a loss to him, he was okay with David being the king. Now Saul and Jonathan are dead David has ruled upon the throne for many years. It's not yet quite happened with, uh, with um, David's not yet sinned with Bathsheba. And so David is still in good standing with the Lord in many respects. And David begins to think about this pact. And so he calls and he says to his servants, Can you find anyone that because of Jonathan... Because of both the righteousness of Jonathan, because of my friendship with Jonathan, and because of the covenant promise that I have made with Jonathan, can you find anyone from his house that I might show kindness to him, not for that man's sake, because he doesn't even know if anyone's alive yet or not, but for the sake of Jonathan. And so they go and they find a servant that used to rule or be one of the heads of the house in Saul. And he says, actually, yeah, there is a young man. Now imagine, the scripture doesn't tell us this, but we know that he was lame of feet. And later on in chapter 19 of 2 Samuel, we find that he was so dependent that there is an occasion where Absalom, David's son, this is long after that, rises up to, to, to begin to fight against David. And when he does, Mephibosheth is unable to leave Jerusalem because nobody will help get him on a horse. And so we learn more about the condition of Mephibosheth that he was extremely handicapped from getting around. Others, he was fully dependent upon others. Now thank God in our day that even in that condition that you can be in today, if you've got a sound mind, that our nation has uh, uh, correctly made people in that condition able to contribute to society through their mind. And so even today, you can have a very good life, yet being handicapped. In this day, it wasn't so. If you were a man, particularly of a kingly lineage, it was all about your your strength. 
It was all about you being able to fight and work. And Mephibosheth does not have that ability. Not to mention he's in the middle of literally nowhere. And so they bring him before the king. Now imagine as he's coming before the king, heir to the throne, knowing what typically happens when an heir to the throne comes before a standing king, perhaps he's anticipating my life is over. I have nothing to contribute to this king. And not only that, but my grandfather was his ultimate enemy, having attempted to kill him on many occasions. And so the Bible tells us that he comes before King David, and man, he is humble. He knows, I don't deserve to be here. I am, to use our text this morning, our title, I am completely unworthy. There is nothing about Mephibosheth, both in his natural body or in his legal standing, or even from God's vantage point, God having removed the kingly lineage from Saul to David, there is nothing about Mephibosheth. It had all been lost. All of his rightful standing to be in the kingdom was gone. And yet there he is. Can't even stand before the king. And the Bible says that he bows down and he honors the king. Now, if you cannot begin to see the parallel that we want to bring out this morning, I hope God will help us to bring it out before you today. There is a insidious doctrine in schools today, I know because I was there for 10 years, that tries to bolster human value based upon their own goodness. You're so smart and you're so good and you're so... You have such good intentions and you have so much potential. And and there is this incessance because there is this, uh, because there is a, a, a mental depression and anxiety going around that the world has taken the step that the antidote to sub mental disorders or to such depressions and anxieties, the antidote to that is to then look at children and say, you know what? You're good and you're wonderful and don't listen to anybody else and what they might tell you. And yet what the Bible teaches us is something completely opposite to that. That what a child needs to know is that they are a sinner. And that any dependence upon inherent good is very misplaced. That we are not worthy, despite what the political world might tell everyone, that you are worthy of all of these various things. What the Bible teaches us is you are not worthy of anything except for death, hell, and the grave. That's what we're inherently worthy of. The world tries to bolster and blow hot air into these children and then these children get out in the real world and their own conscience testify to that not being the case. And when they recognize that, no, I'm not good and those that I seek to join myself to are inherently not good and they're not out for the world's best interest and there's not something sacred or holy or good inherently about people, it leads to a vast disappointment. Because what you're going to learn as you grow is that the world is a dark place. 
That it's not sunshines and rainbows, that the things awaiting you, yes, there are blessings that descend from God in regards to the institution and manners of which God has created. But anything outside of what God has created and ordained is not good. And so many people hit periods of life and they go through vast discouragements and depressions. And that's in part the reason why suicides are on the rise and divorces on the rise and all these various sins because what people expected to be the case wasn't the case. And when they recognize it's not, they begin to seek temporary pleasure to mask the deep pain and disappointment that they have experienced. You see, you and I, when we really get down to what we are, at our core, there's nothing good about us. That sounds so harsh. But don't you recognize that even those of us that are of a religious bent, of a moral bent, Much of the reason why we're this way is because we've been conditioned to be this way. Can you imagine, had you not been instructed, have you ever met children? Have you ever met adults who have not been ever instructed in the ways of truth? Most of us, the answer to that would be no. Because even our very culture is predicated and built upon Christian values. And so almost every way that we function in our culture somehow is a derivative of moral Christian teaching. But if we were to look back in the last 6,000 years of human history, what we would find is that it's an awful place. I would tell my students occasionally whenever I'd get really riled up and they'd get me off on a tangent, I'd say, I hate teaching history in school because we just lie. We, talk, we define the Romans by architecture. We define the Greeks by democracy. and We define the, uh, the, the Mongolians by their forms of communication and by certain beauties in China. But listen, if we really go back and we were to zoom back to what life was really like in all of those places, it was a horrendous, terrible place to be. Here. Bible says this. I'm going to read it to you. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? I want to pause there for just a moment. When you really step back and God helps us to see how high that God is. And when God gives us an appropriate and accurate glimpse of what we are. Now I want to say this. Unless God gives you a glimpse of that, you're not going to see it the way that it is. What you always do because of our frailty is you will always see God as less than what he really is. And you'll see yourself as more than what you really are. It's part of the fall. Now we might succumb to false humility. We might say the company line. I know there's no no good thing that dwelleth in me. But the realization of it. 
Like whenever you're not in a church service and when you're reflecting upon life and you're reflecting upon God and you're praying, one of the things that I would often ask you to pray is, God, help me to see you more for who you really are and see me more for what I really am. Because then you'll be drawn to where the psalmist goes and he says, when I consider the heavens, when I consider all the works of your hands, when I consider who you are, What is man that you would even partially consider looking down from heaven and caring about us whatsoever? You know, there are deists today in the world. There's been deists all throughout time. And their belief is that man is so rotten and no good that why would a God of that magnitude have anything to do with this world? And so what they believe is that God created it all and basically set it upon some system to function uh, perpetually and that he just left and has preoccupied himself with other things because this world and all that is in it is so stinking rotten. You see, the psalmist here is saying, why would God care about us? Those of us, and certainly as you've gotten older, you have seen what is life, as Brother Harvey said last night, but a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. And when you're in full bloom and you feel so important and good and you're the heart of life, and yet it flees so quickly and it's gone. And no matter how important a person was during the course of their life, it always comes to the place and always has come to the place where they reach the pinnacle. And then 10 years after their death, 20 years after their death, their their name is scarcely mentioned to the world. That's rather appropriate, isn't it? Because doesn't it demonstrate just how transient our feelings of self-worth really are? The Bible teaches us we're just, as Brother Harvey quoted last night, we're just like a flower that fades. And, and grass, isn't it amazing that you come out in the spring and you notice how bright the green grass is one day and then it gets to the fall and it's all dead. And it lasted for this brief season and then it's gone. The psalmist, in moments of humility, saw things the way they really are and said, what am I? There's a song, a modern song that's been written. It's a good song. Who am I? The Lord of all the earth would care to know my name. Right? What are we? You see, Mephibosheth, God granted him a little bit of insight. And here's how he describes himself as he is bowing before the king. What am I but a dead dog that you would dare to care about, care about me? I think sometimes it's dangerous because, you see, our children sometimes have this exalted sense of self-worth. I'll, I'll say this about parenting. When our, we may not say you're the most valuable thing in the world. You have all this self-worth. You're the greatest thing and knowingly contradict the Scripture. But when our lives completely revolve around our children and they're at times not made to feel unimportant, I don't think we're doing them a great service. Here, Mephibosheth comes before King David. And notice King David's attitude. He says this, Find someone that I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake. Now what we find in the scriptures is that 
God in heaven shows kindness to the world. That whenever he looks down and he sees people with the same attitude of Mephibosheth. When he sees some of you that are lost and you come down to a place where you're calling out to God in humility. Because the Bible teaches us that the blessed are the poor in spirit. God wants to see people who are poor in spirit. That they're humble. That they're broken. God looks to those people who realize and recognize their unworthiness. And and as a result, call out to God. And the Bible teaches us that. And as Mephibosheth came before him, he recognized his unworthiness. But it was for someone else's sake that David was blessing Mephibosheth. Don't you recognize today, you that are lost, when you come before God, you're not pleading to God on behalf of your own righteousness. You're not saying, God, look at how well that I'm praying today. God, look at all these good things that I have done. God, I am begging you, and I've been to this altar a thousand times, and I have called out to you a thousand times, and this time I really mean it, and this time I'm really saying the right words. That's not what God is going to look down and bless you for, but the reason why God will save your soul ultimately is because of the righteousness of someone else. God in eternity past made a covenant with Jesus Christ that all that would come to Jesus and repent of their sins and put faith, complete dependence upon Jesus, that for the sake of Jesus' righteousness, he would endow us and bless us with a heavenly inheritance. Not because of our own. We don't come and say, God, look at me. I'm so good. No, what we do is we come before God and we say, Lord, I'm just a dead dog before you. I don't deserve even to be here. For the reality is someone else brought me here even to come and stand before you. Notice here that the man who brought him here was a servant, Zeba. And it sounds very similar to me like the Holy Spirit of God, who whenever we're hearing the preaching of the gospel, convicts our heart of sin and reveals to us where we stand before him. And that servant of God. God, the Holy Spirit, was sent in the world to bring us before the throne of God. And we can hear the preaching of the gospel and the truth of the gospel. But until the Holy Spirit, through his own power, brings us before God and the awe and the humility that is induced because we're brought before God, when it does its work, there we are in his presence only because of that servant that brought us there. Don't you recognize tonight that even, even your dependence upon hearing the gospel and it having value and power is fully dependent upon someone else. Mephibosheth gets before him. He says, I'm unworthy to be here. I don't need to be here. Doesn't God resist the proud and give grace to the humble? Isn't that what it says? He who exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself, the Bible says, shall be exalted. We learn all through the scriptures of people who are proud that come to the Lord, but we learn, on the other hand, of these people who come in humility, and Jesus, during his earthly ministry, doesn't speak words of rebuke to those who come in humility, but he speaks directly to their heart. You remember that Roman centurion, Matthew chapter 8, I believe it's around verse 7 or 8, when that Roman centurion has someone that's sick, a servant that is sick, and he says, I want you to send someone to go and let Jesus know that he might heal my servant. And as Jesus is on his way, he sends out another servant, he says, don't even come come to my house because I'm a man of authority. I know what that's like. 
like, but you are so good. You are so holy. You are so busy doing your work. You just speak the word from where you're at because I don't deserve for you to even come to my house. Jesus said this about that Roman centurion. He wasn't a Jew. He was not someone who was expecting a Messiah. He said this. He said, oh, how I've not even found so great a faith in all of Israel as that man's faith was. Do you remember the publican and the Pharisee? Remember Jesus teaching us about prayer? I believe it's Luke 18. He tells us about first that we need to have persistence in prayer. And so he tells us that story of the widow woman who's being abused and she goes to that unjust judge and she begs and she begs and she begs and finally the unjust judge gives her what she wants because she won't stop begging. And in that scripture, Jesus is teaching us that when we pray, we ought to have, as the King James puts it, importunity, persistence. We don't give up. But then the very next thing is the next thing about prayer that God highly values. And he says there was a publican and a Pharisee. A publican for all outside purposes was the more righteous one. And the Pharisee, excuse me, the Pharisee was the more righteous one. And the publican was the one that, that people didn't even associate with. And Jesus uses them both as an example. And he says the Pharisee was proud. Thank God I'm not as these other people. Doing all these other things. But I, here's what all I do. Look at how righteous I am. And because I'm so righteous, I must have a standing with God. And the Bible says this about the publican. It wasn't even in his words that God saw his humility. Notice that. He wouldn't even lift up his head to heaven. Because he was so unworthy. Let me pause for a moment and ask this. When's the last time you felt unworthy to go before God? I didn't say you thought yourself unworthy. You felt unworthy. There's a big difference. Right? Because the human heart is deceitful above all things, the Bible tells us. And I can say with my lips all of the sanctimonious, self-righteous things that I want to say that are technically accurate. But when God lodges a truth in my heart... It emanates in my experience, in my thoughts and in my feelings and and all the things that makes me human. And so in the midst of saying all of these right words, when was the last time that God helped you to sense truly your unworthiness to come before God? That publican... The Bible says that day went down to his house justified. We learn of an occasion later on about Mephibosheth. I think it's chapter 19. Where Absalom has come back to, Absalom has been defeated. He threw a rebellion against David. He's been defeated. And David enters back into Jerusalem. The Bible teaches us about Mephibosheth, I think it's verse 24, that he, his beard had all grown out. He hadn't washed himself. He couldn't because he was a paralytic. He was crippled. And David wants to speak to him. And Mephibosheth says, you see, Ziba had gone out to David and said, Mephibosheth has betrayed you. He's gotten behind Absalom. But when David enters, he learns that that was a lie. That Mephibosheth had never betrayed him. But the reality was that he couldn't go anywhere. He was stuck in Jerusalem because Ziba had abandoned him. 
And so David comes back. And I want to read. So here, Mephibosheth has been falsely accused by Ziba. And David is standing before him. And he tells David, I didn't do anything. I wasn't trying to betray you. It wasn't me. And here's what he says. This is Mephibosheth speaking. And he has slandered thy servant unto my lord the king. But my lord the king is an angel of God. Do therefore what is good in thine eyes. For all of my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king. Yet didst thou set thy servant among them that did eat at thine own table. What right therefore have I yet to cry any more unto the king? If you're not getting what he's saying here, he's saying this. Yes, I was falsely accused, king. But I'm so unworthy to come before you that the only reason why all those things were restored to me in the first place was because of your goodness. And so I'm not even going to come and beg you that I might be restored because I never deserved any of it in the first place. What humility. You see, what that demonstrates to me over the course of time is that that wasn't him giving verbal assent to a truth that he knew would please the king, but rather he deeply believed it. Because what would most people's reaction be? Well, king, you ought to punish Ziba because he lied. You ought to give me back where I had previously been. He doesn't say this. He just says, why are you even worrying about me? I'm a nobody, and the only reason I was somebody is because you made me somebody, and you allowed me to eat at the king's table. But since this false accusation has taken place, and here I am with matted hair, here I am filthy, here I am where I've always deserved to be. The king, we don't know why, but he restores him partfold, gives him half, and gives Ziba the other half this morning. Struggling to bring before you, we don't deserve God's goodness. I pray that God would, to us that are saved, He would give us more than lip service and our sense of unworthiness. That we could, like Isaiah did in Isaiah 6, see God high and lifted up. And see us as a sinful, unclean person dwelling, dwelling in the midst of other unclean people. And that it only is by God's grace. Amos the prophet said he was a sheep herder from Tekoa. Jeremiah was from Ananoth and said, who am I? Isaiah said, who am I? All of these men who stood before God recognized in that moment where God was present, I don't deserve to be here. Lost friend, today I'll say this. Before you're going to get anywhere in the presence of God, it's not by predetermining where you think you belong or what you think you deserve to get or whether your repentance, whether your faith, whether your sorrow, whether your feelings are sufficient to deserve salvation. No, when God saves a person, it is when truly down deep they have surrendered all of their self-righteousness and they have said, I'm just a dead dog. I remember a friend of mine who got saved at 59 years old and he had prayed and prayed and prayed and finally he came to the place where he said to the Lord, 
Lord, if me, if you will be lifted up by condemning me to a devil's hell to burn forever, God, so be it. That's humility. That's someone who recognizes their own unworthiness to be in the presence of God today. If you're lost this morning, I pray God would help you, that God would help me, that God would help all of us to recognize when that is the case, what you'll notice is this. Mankind is lowered and God is elevated. When there is truly a recognition of who God is, it begins to be less oriented about us and much more about him. Your life becomes less oriented about personal satisfaction and preference and much more about obedience to God. This morning, I pray that God would give us a heart like Mephibosheth that we could see things for the way that they really are. And isn't that amazing that that's all that it really is? It's not that we have to embellish how great God is and how low that we are. We just need to see things for the way they really are. That's all that it is. And I pray that God would do that.